Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Sarah Austin Janess. In this episode, mistakes and missteps and the regrets that follow, and one bold move with no regrets at all. We'll hear stories from the Newark Airport, Washington State, the countryside in Zambia, and two stories from our Houston slams. And we'll start in New York with a student in need of a haircut. Alfonso Lacayo shared this at our first high school Grand Slam at Housing Works in New York City, for a very enthusiastic crowd. Here's Alfonso, live at the month. Okay, so I'm in fourth grade, going to fifth grade, and it's the end of the summer, and I'm getting ready for school. And I got my school supplies, my school clothes, my super cool new lunchbox, the new J's on my feet, you know, the new Jordan sneakers. I'm set. There's only really one thing I'm missing, and you know how like when you're a kid, you don't really care how your hair looks? <laughs> like you don't really take care of your hair, like you don't really comb it or wash it. Or maybe that's just me, or maybe that's just me. <laughs> so at the end of the summer, my hair was kind of just like this thing on my head. And it was terrible, it was revolting. Like it was, nobody wanted to look at it. And so everywhere I'm going, my friends are like, yo, Alfonso, you need a haircut. My sister is telling me, you need a haircut, you know? My mom's kind of corny. She said, I'm gonna get you a haircut before you go to school, because you look like a fool, you know? That's what she said. <laughs> and, and so one day, and I'm kind of just like, yeah, you know, I agree, I need a haircut. So one day, I go to my cousin's house, and it's my older, older, older cousin, and my other cousin around my age. And so I'm sitting there, I'm playing video games with my other cousin around my age, and while I'm playing video games, I kind of notice my older cousin kind of staring at my hair. And all of a sudden he says, you know I could cut your hair right for free. <laughs> and I, I'm like, really? Really? Because that'd be great. My mom's been trying to, she said I need a haircut before I go back to school, so this'd be awesome. And so nobody, I didn't really know better. Like nobody was there to say, stop. This guy is not a licensed barber. He's not qualified to cut hair. This is not what he does. It's just not. And so my cousin takes me to the backyard, to the garage. And the garage is dark. And there's not really much light except for this old rusty lamp. And you know how like in the movies when they find some ancient artifact and there's the dust on it and they blow in it and the dust slide away? <laughs> that was that lamp, that was it. So my cousin, you know, starts cutting my hair. There was no mirrors either, you know? And you know how like, you know how like when you go to the barbershop, there's those giant mirrors. 
So while you're getting your hair cut, you could kind of look up and check, you know, I like that, that's nice, you know. It was really <laughs> So my cousins cut my hair for like 25, 30 minutes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he stops. And he's proud of his work. He's like, bang, there you go, I got you, little man. Give me a high five, got you. And I get up, you know, I'm like, okay, now I'm ready for school, you know. I wanna go play video games with my cousin now. And so I knew there was something wrong. I knew there was something wrong. Because as soon as I stepped foot into the house, my other cousin around my age looks at me and starts dying, crying, laughing all over the place, hysterically. And I like jokes, you know, I want to know what's funny too. So I go to the bathroom and I come face to face with the mirror. I couldn't believe what I saw, guys. My hairline was back here. And this was all shining. Like I had like this windshield thing going on. Like if, if you look closely enough into my forehead, you can see your own reflection in it. It was crazy, it was just glistening. And I was kind of crazy when I was a kid. So I started bugging out all over the place. You know, I'm screaming everywhere. Why, what am I gonna do? Oh my God, cousin, why have you wronged me this way? How am I supposed to go to school? What am I gonna do? So later on, I get dropped off at my house and I see my mom. And she looks at me and she kind of just like shrugs it off, you know? She's like, oh, well, you know, I told you I was gonna get you a haircut. You should have waited and now you're gonna look funny. And so that's what happened. I looked funny for the first two to three weeks of school. People laughed and made jokes. And I don't know if y'all can tell, I keeps it fresh now. <laughs> so basically, I trusted my cousin once and I will never trust him again for anything. The Moth first met Alfonso Lacayo when he was part of our education program as a high school student at Dreamyard Prep in New York City. Alfonso is still living in New York, and right after this bad haircut, he met Al, the barber who has been cutting his hair for over seven years. He says Al is a barber I can rely on. Our next story takes place at the airport. Noreen King told this at a Story Slam in Seattle, where we partner with public radio station KUOW. Here's Noreen, live at the Mall. So, I've, I'm from New York originally, from Woodside, Queens, and every year we used to go back to New York to visit my mother, who still lived there. And when uh, we went back, my took my two daughters, it was just me and them. My older daughter, Leah, was about four years old and three months. And my younger daughter, Maeve, was about two years and three months. So on the way there, we took a red eye. And my two-year-old daughter, who I did not purchase a ticket for because she was two years and three months, asleep in my arms, in her pajamas, and nobody knew the difference. Everything was fine. I'm saving money. <laughs> <coughs> On the way back, so now this is Newark Airport, the airport was packed. You know, after the holiday, it's Sunday. There's thousands of people all over. Flights are canceled. We get on the line. It's about 6 o'clock. 
and this is before the days of uh, everybody has on their phones, you know, you have to go up to the counter and check in. So we, we were checking in, waiting on the line. There's so many people in front of us. And I come up with the stroller with the two girls packed with stuff. You can just see their two little faces. And they look pretty identical at that age and all just filled with stuff because all my luggage is on it. I go up to the counter and the woman says, oh, you know, can I have your tickets? I said, yes, here they are. And she said, well, where's the other ticket? And I said, oh, I don't have a ticket for her. She's, she's not two years old. And I hear my daughter say, mommy, why did you tell the lady? Maeve isn't two, she's two years and three months. So, <clears throat> yeah, I turn a little bit and I come back to the counter and the lady said, how old is your daughter? And I said, as quiet as I could, she's not two. <laughs> Which is usually how everyone describes how old their kids are. So, <laughs> my daughter says again, Mommy, you said it again. Her birthday is September. There are so many people behind me, and they are hearing it. They're part of the whole thing, and it's so crowded. And she says, I'm getting the manager. I couldn't believe it, and I'm like, what am I going to do? So imagine me bending down to the stroller to get to my daughter's height and saying, Leah, when the man comes out, I assumed it would be a man, when the man comes out, don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. But mommy, you're telling a lie to the man. <laughs> Leah, nothing. And then the man came and I stood up and he said, where are your tickets? And I said, they're right here. He said, where's the other one? I said, trying to get away from my daughter. <laughs> I don't have one because she's not two. And he said, oh, really? And Leah says, her birthday is in September, mommy. Why are you saying this? Why are you saying this? And I, I wanted to be invisible. I wanted him to tell me the ticket is $5,000 and you can go away. Anything. I want him to tell me anything. And the crowds are there. And the crowds, I feel like they're forming around me. And he said, um, when's her birthday? So all of the brain cells had fallen out of my head. I'm just so sick about this. And the only date that came to mind was the 4th of July. And I said, her birthday is the 4th of July. And, and then he said what year <laughs> uh, and I, ha I have nothing in my head and I said I don't know <laughs> and then and then he said don't ever do this again and I said I never will <laughs> thank you Thank mm -hmm. you.
Noreen King is a New Yorker who's been living in Seattle for almost 30 years. When she's not working, she loves to garden, cook, and read history books. Noreen's daughter Leah still happily corrects her in front of others, and Noreen says, I do like to bend the rules sometimes. I inherited it from my mother. Noreen sent us photos of her daughters in the airport the day this story took place, and she says the photos really show their personalities. To see them, go to themoth.org. After our break, two stories of actions that cannot be undone. When the Moth Radio Hour continues. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janess. We're exploring missteps in this hour, and sometimes when we make a mistake, we can't go back. David Watson Wabila developed this next story in one of our global community workshops. The story takes place in a small town in Zambia where he grew up. David told this at a moth event that we produced during the UN General Assembly, where the stories were all about equal rights. Here's David Watson Wabila, live at the moth. I was five years old when my mother decided to take me and five of my siblings from the capital city of Zambia, Lusaka, to the village in Kanakantapa district to go and live with my grandmother a journey which took us about three days. So I finally get there, a small boy in a strange land where people spoke a language I did not understand, with people whose ways of life I was not accustomed to. The community was economically deprived, people walked barefoot, and it was a struggle to have a decent meal. So there I was, scared for me and my sisters, wondering what was going to become of us. I turned around to look, and there she was, the most beautiful girl I had ever seen my whole life. (laughs) She looked at me and smiled. I looked at her, smiled back. From that very moment, I knew she was special. I found out that her name was Toko, and the few days that followed, we became best friends. (laughs) She could teach me about our traditions and customs, how our tradition valued gender and sexual roles above everything else, that a man should only do a man's job, and a woman should only do a woman's job, such as cooking and taking care of the kids. Another of such tradition was the Chukwela Makumbi traditional ceremony, where the elderly men in the village would go on top of the mountain to give offering to our ancestors so that we can have a good harvest and good rains. One afternoon, me and Toko were walking from the well, and we passed by a person who was an albino. All of a sudden, Toko pulled her shirt out and spat inside it. 
I was curious. I asked her, why have you done that? She told me that in this tradition, anyone who was physically different from us was considered to have had a bad omen. And in order for us to repel that omen away from us, we were supposed to spit inside our sheds and stay away from them as much as possible. So I spat inside my shed and off we went on our merry way. <laughs> By the age of 15, me and Toko were inseparable. We did everything together. She told me about her dreams and aspirations, how she wanted to make life better for everyone around her, me and her family inclusive. And I would tell her about my dreams and aspirations, which were not much, probably just having a car and so on. One afternoon, after a rainy day, which was a sign of good luck to us, me, her, and three of my cousins decided to go and put fertilizer in our cornfield. The bags of fertilizer were about 200 pounds in your American scale. And they were too heavy for us as young lads to carry them. So we called our elders to come and help lift the bags. So they helped us. We loaded the bags into the cart. And off we went. We finally get to the field. It was soggy and wet because of the rains. So my cousin and I decided to jump inside the cart and push the bags down. While we were pushing the bags down, we did not realize that Toko was standing too close to the end of the cart. So accidentally, one of the bags fell on her. As she screamed in pain, I jumped off trying to help her, but the bag was too heavy, I couldn't manage. So my cousin told me to run back to the village and call for help. When help finally came, I was told the bad news, that my best friend had broken her thigh. The nearest clinic to our village was kilometers away. And because it was rainy season and the terrains were so bad, it meant that it was impossible for one to move from one area to the next. So while the elders were waiting for things to get better, they decided to opt for traditional medicines. Every afternoon, I would go to check up on Toko and encourage her that everything will be okay. You go to the clinic, you'll be treated, and you'll be fine. The day finally came when she had to go to the clinic. Her parents took her there. I went and bid her farewell, and I told her, when you come back, you'll find me home. I'll be waiting for you. When she came home, I was so eager to see her. So I rushed to go and see her, expected to be greeted by her beautiful and charming smile. But all I could see was despair in her eyes. I asked what happened, and the father told me the bad news, that the doctors had amputated her leg because we took so long to take her to the clinic. From that very day, everything changed. The times we used to spend together were normal. I would go and see her once in a while, 
but I couldn't spend as much time as I wanted to. One evening, I come back home, which was about two weeks since I returned from the hospital. I found her seated by the fire. So I went and sat down next to her, and she started to bitterly lament to me. She told me about how losing her leg has meant that it's the end of her life. She told me about how she was wondering what her or her parents did wrong so that the bad omen can fall on her. I was scared of her, but I loved her too much to stay away. So I listened to everything that she wanted to say. She looked up to me for guidance and solace, but I was unable to give her that. Even though I did not implicitly tell her that I too believed that her life is over because she had lost her leg, she knew me so well she was able to tell because it was written all over my face. I, I told her, good night. I went to bed and I left her there. The following morning when I woke up, I was in limbo. I wondered what I should do, whether I should embark on a journey to school or I should stay home and watch over her. However, I decided to go to school. In my mind, I was sure I'll come and see her when I come back and things hopefully will be normal. That afternoon, I'm coming back from school as I am approaching the village, things are not the way they are supposed to be. The people who are supposed to be fetching water to prepare for our evening meal were not doing so. The boys who are supposed to be fetching firewood were not doing so. So I'm rushing back home wondering what had happened. I get there, I find my grandmother crying. She was unconsolable. I asked what happened she wouldn't say a word. That's when I realized I had not seen my best friend since morning. So I started running around looking for her. I ran into her mother's house. She was not there. I ran into my grandmother's house. She was not there as well. I ran into my uncle's house, and I finally found her lifeless on her mother's laps. I asked the mother what happened, and she told me that my best friend had taken her own life because she believed that her life had ended the day she lost her leg. In that moment, the conversation that we had the previous night came back to me. It was my fault that this happened. I was so confused, I could not cry. So I went outside and sat under the mango tree, contemplating about everything that had happened. It has been nine years now since the death of Toko, and every single morning I wake up with the zeal and the passion to change the beliefs on disability, not just in my community, but all across the world. Thank you.
That was David Watson Wabila. These days, David lives in Lusaka, the capital city of Zambia. But he spends most of his time working in rural farming communities like the one he grew up in. It's been more than 10 years since the events in this story, but David will never forget Toko. And he uses storytelling to change stereotypes toward people with disabilities in Africa. He also loves to be in nature, fishing, hiking, and beekeeping. And in fact, he's the founder of a honey processing company, helping African beekeepers and their families live better lives. To find out about his sustainable efforts, go to themoth.org. Next up, a story from Megan McNally from one of our Seattle Grand Slams, where we partner with public radio station KUOW. Here's Megan, live at the Moth. Growing up, I could tell my grandmother anything. We remember her mostly now for her stories and her tendency to exaggerate, but I think we don't give her enough credit for all the secrets that she kept. We called her Nanny, and Nanny loved all of her grandchildren, though I'm pretty certain that I was her favorite. And this isn't anything she told me, she just had a way of making you feel that. We spent our our summers and our weekends at her house where we could stay up as late as we wanted. We had coffee cake for breakfast and pudding for lunch. She let us watch R-rated movies and stay in the swimming pool until our fingertips turned to prunes. She was the kind of grandmother who would answer almost anything that you asked her and the kind who gave you your first sips of beer, and wine, and whiskey. (laughs) So Nanny and I had a a special code word between us, and she knew that if I called her from the school nurse's office and said I had a tummy ache, that that meant I just didn't want to be at school that day. And she would come get me, and we'd take off on our own adventure. And Nanny was a really gifted storyteller, but She was also a generous listener. So when I got pregnant at 19, she was one of the only people that I wanted to be around. I had decided to give my baby up for adoption. And she had just lost her husband, my poppy. So we were two people who were dealing with our own kind of loss and just trying to find our footing. And though she was devoutly Catholic, she didn't judge me. And she wasn't embarrassed to be seen with me. She knew, probably better than I did, that I had a tough road ahead of me, and yet she didn't pry. She let me talk about it in my own time, and she would tell me her favorite stories of growing up in New York and falling in love. And though Nanny was fiercely independent in a lot of ways, she was also the product of a generation in which women relied a lot on their husbands. And so when her husband died, I think people were expecting her to fall apart. And she knew this. And in a similar way, I knew that people were waiting for me to fall apart. They were wondering how I could have messed my life up so much. And I learned they were taking bets on whether I would go through with it. And we formed a special bond under the weight of all of this. Until one day, Nanny said to me, you know, Meg, we really ought to keep this baby in the family. And just like that, our bond was broken. I was devastated because I thought she must not have known me at all. And 
I was really upset and I don't remember seeing her for the rest of my pregnancy and I didn't let her see my daughter before I gave her up. Our relationship was strained for years and even when we became close again, we didn't talk about it. When my daughter turned 18 and found me on Facebook, I told a staff meeting, but I didn't tell my nanny. And a few years after that, when I learned that she'd graduated college, had moved to New York and fallen in love, I didn't tell nanny. There were so many times that I visited her that I just tried to will myself to open my fucking mouth and tell her about her first great-granddaughter, how much she reminded me of her, how scared I'd been all those years wondering if I had made a mistake. How grief was this thing that had ripped me open and made me into something entirely different and something that I wasn't always proud of. I wanted to tell her how bittersweet it was to learn my daughter turned out just fine without me. And mostly, I wanted to tell her how sorry I was for just leaving her out of all of this. But it's a it's a funny thing how the longer you wait to do something, the harder it is to do. In the last years of her life, Nanny and I talked on the phone all the time. And we talked about everything from Florida football to politics to what we thought heaven might look like. We talked about everything, it seems, except for this one thing. And when she had a stroke and I knew the end of her life was near, I flew home to be with her. I sat alone with her on her bed and reminded her of summer nights, and swimming pools, and jello pudding. But I knew this was my last chance. And so I took her hand and took a breath, and I finally said, Nanny, do you remember that I had a little girl that I gave up for adoption? And of all the things that I had imagined after all those years that she might say, I never imagined that she would say no. Whether it was the failing memory of a 96-year-old woman or a lack of oxygen to a brain that's dying, my grandmother didn't remember the thing that had caused me the most pain. And I didn't get to say, I'm sorry. And she didn't get to say, it's okay. And when she died the next day, I didn't just lose my grandmother. I became someone who'd waited too long. Thanks. That was Megan McNally. Today, Megan is a lawyer and entrepreneur living in Seattle. And she built a network for fellow female leaders called the F-Bomb Breakfast Club, where thousands of members help each other launch new businesses. Megan still hasn't met her daughter in person. She says, my daughter is an emergency room nurse in New York City, and she's saving people's lives. We only ever communicated through Facebook and email. It will always be her decision whether to meet me in person, and I say a little prayer every day that someday she'll want to. Here's a message Megan sent us. I regret that I didn't understand grief, that I never asked for help, that I let fear win out over love. With Nanny, I had so many opportunities, and yet I always believed there would be more. 
She deserved better. I let her down. To see a photo that Megan found of her and Nanny from 1987 in Happy Times, go to themoth.org. After our break, a trip to Iran and a bold move when NASA calls. When the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janess. This is an hour all about that nagging feeling that you may not have done something you should have. It's about regrets, both big and small. Our two final stories were told at our open mic story slams in Texas, where we partner with Houston Public Media. Nadia Hakim's story takes place on an airplane. There are trips we wish we'd never taken and some we wish we had. Here's Nadia, live at the Moth. Have y'all ever been on a flight where the, the pilot comes on the PA system and the first thing he does, rather than the typical, we would like to welcome our frequent flyers, skips all of that, just goes straight into a prayer? Uh, like, just imagine, just as soon as he gets on the PA system, just say, <clears throat> Bismillah, and just in the name of God, the merciful, we pray for a safe journey, so on and so forth. God is great, God is great, God is great. I see some of you nodding and smiling, and that's because you have flown nationally in the Middle East, North African region. For those of you who haven't, it is very unsettling to hear. So, back up 45 minutes prior to the prayer. I'm sitting at the gate with my, mo- with my mother, who's Filipino, my father, who's Iranian, and my sister, who's three years younger than me. And they come on and make the announcement that, sorry for the delay, flight such and such to Shiraz for Asaman Air is now gonna start boarding, so please everyone line up in an orderly manner. Zoom. All right, it's just pure chaos. And you can't even get mad because Iranians are so kind and so polite, like the whole way they're just like oh please let me help you with your luggage please 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 but like kind of hustling you you know so it it's that way all the way to the shuttle and as we're approaching the aircraft and the shuttle my dad's looking at it and he's examining the plane and he says oh shoot is that a 727 and my parents have worked for the airlines all my life so i start going through my list i'm like 737 747 777 bombardier a bombardier okay uh, Baba, we have, have we ever flown on a 727? And he said, no. That's because um, they stopped making 727s in 1984. <laughs> and they would have gotten this before the Islamic Revolution in 79. So this plane's about 35 years old. And well, it's too late to turn back now. So we get on this 35-ish year old plane and we get situated in our seats. And the flight attendant comes by <laughs> and asked the guy in the row in front of us, he's like, excuse me, sir, um, what time was the flight supposed to leave? And the guy's like, it's at seven o'clock. And so the flight attendant, oh, so we're only 45 minutes late then. 
And we have this running joke in Iran that Iranians only use time to tell the difference between day and night. So exhibit A, your flight crew doesn't know your departure time, right? So cue the prayer. And then we start, the plane starts moving so that we can get ready for takeoff and just and then the brakes and then the wing flaps just like there is not a drop of oil on this plane and it's like how did that prayer go again like oh but we take off we get in the air and then the pilot comes on and says all the stuff we were expecting. Uh, welcome to the flight from Esfahan to Shiraz. Um, it's gonna be about an hour and 15 minutes, so we're not gonna turn off the fasting seatbelt sign. But as he's saying this, the beverage cart comes by, and right after the beverage cart is uh, another flight attendant who's handing out containers of fresh stew and fresh rice. And Iranian stews are like not something you can sloppily throw together like a turkey sandwich or anything like this. It is a labor of love. And the way that this stew tasted, it was as if the, as if the pilot's mother, maybe even his grandmother, like before he was heading out the door, she's like, Puya, Puya John, take some, take some pomegranate stew for your airplane friends. Come on, just bring some. So, and in that moment, I'm realizing, like, no wonder when my uncle comes from Iran to visit the States and he has to fly domestically, he gets so pissed. It's snacks, it's snacks, tiny pretzel, peanuts. Like, if this is what's waiting for you on an hour flight back in Iran, heck yeah, like, I would be pissed too. So just as quickly as they serve everything, they quickly clean it up, and they come onto the PA system, and they're asking for a doctor on board. And I know as if anything else could happen on this. And it turns out that the woman directly behind me, she's not feeling well. So they come with an oxygen tank and they get the mask on her, but it's 15 minutes until, um, until we land. So the flight attendants are, they come up to us and they're, they're, they gotta hand off this oxygen tank. So they're sizing my sister and me up. And my sister, up, she's 28 years old now and a pharmacist. Up until last year, they have been giving her a hard time sitting on the emergency exit rows on airplanes because they think she's too young. You have to be 15 to sit in those rows, all right? So they're sizing my baby face sister and me up and they ultimately decide that baby Yoda is the more competent looking one out of the two of us. So they place it on her, it's as big as she is, and they say, hey, so if this needle goes into the red, Persian vocabulary that we don't remember from over 15 years ago in those Sunday school classes, crud, how does that prayer go again? Um, so, fortunately, we survived the noisiest landing of all time. The needle never goes into the red. Um, we get to see my family, who I, a lot of them I had never met. Um, I honestly wish I could tell you that this story happened a few months ago. I honestly wish I could tell you it happened even just a couple of years ago. Um, but it's been five, going on six years since I've been in Iran last, and I'm just constantly beating myself up for not having gone back and visit my family sooner. I, how were we supposed to know that there would be travel bans? How were we supposed to know that there could possibly be a, a full-blown-out war?
crud. <laughs> How does that prayer go again? <laughs> Thank you. That was Nadia Hakim. Nadia lives with her wife in Houston, Texas. She works with Harris County Public Health, which means she's supporting epidemiologists with their response to COVID-19. Nadia's last visit with her family in Iran was for Persian New Year in 2015. She still chats with them virtually, but it's tough. She says, I was born on the right side of this imaginary line at the right time. So that means I can travel without hesitation and I've been offered more opportunities throughout my life. My family in Iran is stuck and in a terrible economic situation. Knowing that I can't solve their problems from the root is a heartache like no other. You can see photos of Nadia with her lookalike great aunt and the rest of her family in Iran on our website, themoth.org. Our last storyteller in this hour is Robert Hallett, who also told his story at one of our open mic slams in Texas, where we partner with Houston Public Media. Here's Robert, live at the Moth. So it turns out that there is no official age requirement to be an astronaut with NASA. Uh, you can look it up. They've taken applicants at age 20, at age 30, and even late 40s, presumably uh, more than that if you can pass the physical. There are, however, other requirements to be an astronaut. You have to be an American citizen. You have to have 2020 vision or vision correctable to 2020. And if you're going to come in as a pilot, you have to be a military pilot or an aviation pilot. But you can also be a payload specialist if you have a science degree. That's it. That's the requirements. However, there's one impediment for me that I'm Canadian. So that was a bit of an issue. Now, I'm 57 years old, which means that I grew up in, you know, in the 60s. I was born in 1961. And people who are my age or older, I mean, it was a big deal to watch the astronauts land on the moon in 1969, you know, school got shut down, we went to the gym, it was a major deal. And in fact, later in life when people would ask me, well, why do you want to be a lawyer? Or what do you want to do this for? I would say, because I got too big to be an astronaut. That was my standard answer. So I came down here, I met my wife, we moved back to Canada, we had our kids there. And in 2003, we moved back to Houston, Texas. I had married an American, so I became an American citizen. <laughs> Number two, I had laser surgery in 2006. You might remember that in 2007, the Houston Chronicle had an ad, or had a full page thing saying NASA was looking for seven astronauts and uh, it listed the requirements that I previously covered. I mentioned this at the breakfast table and I looked kind of like what I look like now. So my family was a little skeptical, but I pointed out that I was at the time, you know, mid to late 40s. And so although I was at the end of the age requirement, I qualified. My wife pointed out that I couldn't even change a light bulb. So the chances of me being a payload specialist and being able to be helpful, probably not great. But, you know, so I was a little perturbed by this response. So I did what you would expect me to do. I went to work the next day, and I fired up the internet. 
Now, if you're going to apply for a job uh, with the government, it doesn't matter if you want to be chairman of the SEC or a janitor with Veterans Affairs or an astronaut, you get on usajobs.gov. And I found that, and I started my application process on the internet. I thought it was going to take 20 minutes. Two hours into that, I'm answering essay questions. I'm phoning my mom to find out where we lived. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm ready. So after your, your, your application is almost done, it asks you to go back and review everything, and it says submit. And you get a form response immediately. And it was the best email I've ever received in my life because this form response said, Dear blank, Robert, your application for blank astronaut is now pending with blank NASA. <laughs> you have completed the requirements of the application. We will let you know as your application works through the process. Yours truly, head of personnel. So I did what every male my age would have done, every person my age would have done. I went to my Outlook contacts of 3,500-ish people, and I pasted every one of them into the BCC line, and I sent this email to everyone with a cover note that said, my application to be an astronaut with NASA is pending, and I'll let you know if I'm around to do your work in any time soon. As you can imagine, my email blew up, my phone blew up. My mother was the first one who called, not surprisingly. And, and I had good fun entertaining those calls, right? So, you know, I went home and told the family, and there were some eye rolls, and, you know, my wife pointed out that I'd get a little bit airsick flying, and, you know, there, there were things that I, and, and it was, you know, 50 pounds-ish overweight, things I would have to deal with. There was things that were gonna have to be addressed, but I, you know, quickly forgot about it. They're haters, they, you know, they can deal with it. So, you know, anyways, we went to a school function with my daughters, and you know, they were young at the time, they were lower, lower school, now they're, they're in high school. We went to a school function, and it was pointed out to me that there was a guy there who had worked for NASA, and he was a trainer, and he had been a trainer for 15 years. So I found him, and he said, you know, what is, you know, tell me what your background is. And I said, well, I was a geologist and then I went to law school. You know, the geologist checked the, you know, the science thing. And he said, you know, NASA likes kind of weird backgrounds, so there is a chance you might get a call. <laughs> that night, we went home. I make this up not. My light, the light was blinking. Remember this is 2007, so light was blinking on, you know, our phone and I picked it up and played it, and it was a woman from HR at NASA who said, yeah, we need you to report to NASA and do a full physical, and we need a list of every employer you've had so we can talk to all of them, including your current employer, to do a security check, and the physical is gonna take all day, and you need to come down, and you know, there's no assurances, but you've been through a couple of cuts, and this is now serious. So phone me so we can book your appointment. My wife ran to the internet, came back and said, we can't live on the salary of astronaut one, <laughs> and we are not moving to Clear Lake. So those are the two things she said. My youngest daughter, who was four or five, she kind of put her head down and she heard all this and she said, mom, let daddy follow his dream. That night, I thought about it. I went in the next morning, I phoned NASA, because I wanted on my terms.
to tell them that I was going to withdraw because, let's face it, it probably wasn't going to happen. I wanted to do it my way. I politely withdrew from the process so somebody else could have a better chance. But every now and then when I'm feeling down, I get that email out to remind myself my application for an astronaut was pending with NASA. Robert Hallett is a dad, husband, and energy executive who lives in Houston, Texas. We included this story in the Regrets Hour because I was shocked that Robert withdrew his application so easily. I had to call him and ask him about it. So, Robert, we love, love, loved your story. And when we got to the end, we all, we had, like, collectively gasped. We couldn't believe that you withdrew your application, Robert. You were so close. <laughs> well, sir, I don't know if I would say it was close. I mean, to put it in context, I think there were seven positions and something like 10,000 applicants. I, I made it through a, a round or two, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how it would have worked out if I would have kept going anyways. Do you ever, even on a rainy day, think of what might have been? I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it was a regret, but sometimes it's better to preserve the dream than really to have to face the inconvenient truth. So I can always tell myself, you know, that it would, that was still possible as opposed to, you know, having to face any other reality. Eternal bragging rights. Right, right. Hmm. And, you know, I've, I, I've since lost that email. It's been more than 10 years, but there was a period of time where I kept it in my desk and would pull it out and look at it, you know, and when uh, I had a bad day, and it, it still lifts my spirits. That was Robert Hallett. Remember, you can share these stories or others from the Moth Archive through our website, themoth.org. This hour has been about regrets. Having regrets, after all, just means that you're human. And sometimes, if you're willing to talk about them, they make powerful stories. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. Host this hour was Sarah Austin Janess. Sarah also directed the stories in the show along with Michelle Jalowski and Catherine McCarthy, with additional coaching in the high school program by Michaela Bly. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Emily Couch. The Moth would like to thank the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for the support of the Moth's Global Community Program. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Wolf Peck, Michael Hedges, Danny Norbury, Charlie Hayden, Omid Shabani, and Chet Atkins. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.